KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. A San Diego congressman talks about efforts to remove the president. Uh, I believe he's got to be out of office now. Obviously, he could resign. We know he's not going to do that. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. An historical perspective on white mobs and black protests. White rage or white protest is oftentimes viewed as being legitimate and fundamentally patriotic, whereas black or brown is not. The new members of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors set a new agenda, and the San Diego Rep releases an online series of plays called Vamos. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. House Democrats today took the first steps in the effort to remove Donald Trump from office. An article of impeachment was introduced charging Trump with incitement of insurrection in connection with the storming of the Capitol by a mob of his supporters last Wednesday. The Democrats also tried to have a resolution passed by unanimous consent urging Vice President Pence and the cabinet to remove Trump from office. Joining me with more information about today's dramatic events in the House is San Diego Congressman Scott Peters. And Congressman Peters, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Thanks for having me. The session in the House went by so quickly today, it was easy to miss what happened. Can you explain why unanimous consent was asked for in the 25th Amendment resolution? Sure. In order to uh, speed things up, um, one of the one of the options that Congress has is to dispense with the the rules typically that would take you would you have to go through to get to get something on the floor. Um, you do that by unanimous consent, but it only takes one person to object. So I think that she expected that there would be an objection. There was an objection. So today the Rules Committee and uh, Congress will take the steps needed formally to put it on the floor tomorrow for a vote. And okay, so it's they're going to ask for a vote tomorrow on the resolution. Uh, Even if it were passed, though, it wouldn't force the vice president of the cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment, would it? No, but I think it's I think this is the most important message to send. Uh, We have a president who uh, incited an insurrection, a coup against the United States. Uh, I believe he's got to be out of office now. Obviously, he could resign. We know he's not going to do that. The next best thing is to ask Republicans to take responsibility for Uh, this president and help us um, lead an effort to get him out of office. 
And the, the cleanest way to do that is through the 25th Amendment, which is a job of the cabinet and the vice president. Okay, also today, an article of impeachment was introduced against President Trump. What is the time frame on moving forward with that? Well, as you can imagine, it's very problematic. I think that the, what I've heard, we have a caucus meeting coming up later today, is that if nothing happens with regard to the 25th Amendment, uh, that Speaker Pelosi will bring to the floor um, this article of impeachment, uh, I think probably Thursday. Uh, the House would pass that. I think we may even have some Republican votes. But then obviously it goes to the Senate, and we already know that the Senate doesn't reconvene until the 19th, and probably this trial wouldn't get started in the Senate until literally the hour after President Biden is sworn in on the 20th. So it didn't, it didn't achieve the objective of getting rid of President Trump, didn't get him out of office, and it starts to get in the way of what we really want to do, which is move on and, and fix this country, deal with coronavirus, uh, take, take care of the economy, all the other things. So that's why I think um, the impeachment may be of important, important as a statement but it doesn't get us uh, what we want, which is the removal of President Trump. You know, uh, let me let me ask you a few more questions about that, because the last uh, impeachment of the president uh, last year went through the House with no Republican votes. It was a complete, a complete partisan sort of a, a vote. And you say this time around, you think that some Republican members in the House may vote for impeachment? Yes, yeah, so we've seen a couple people. Um, Adam Kinzinger is one of my colleagues from Illinois. A couple of people really express uh, outrage, the same as any Democrat has, about the president's role in inciting this violence. So I think we'll probably get a few, but not 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 30 or 40 or 50. I'm thinking more like five or 10. So you've outlined uh, the time frame that Mitch McConnell has set for the earliest they could take up this impeachment trial, which is, you know, uh, as you say, the, the hour after Joe Biden is inaugurated as president. Considering that, is there really any point in pursuing impeachment proceedings? Well, it's an excellent question. It's a little bit like firing a, a missile at a building that will be the empty, empty by the time the missile hits. I believe that the, the argument for it that people make is that there has to be some accountability for this. And this is the gun that Congress has to fire is impeachment. And so even if it ends up just being in the nature of a censure, uh, we will have declared that President Trump is the only president to have been impeached twice. You know, we would really like to hear from President-elect Biden about whether this is really how he wants to spend the first month of his presidency or any part of his presidency is talking about Donald Trump. I kind of think that attention is what Donald Trump wants and that having that trial uh, about him, almost in the nature of a reward than a punishment. We'll vote for it if it comes to the House floor, but I think your question is a, is a really good one. When the mob stormed the Capitol last Wednesday, what did you and your staff experience during those hours? Well, because of COVID, we don't have a full staff in the office. So actually, it was just me and my uh, DC chief, Dan Zawatowski. He was in my uh, my office. Uh, I went to I went down to hear the argument personally. So I was one of the people in the House chamber who um, was there when leadership was whisked off the floor. Uh, suddenly, uh, we were told that the Capitol had been breached. Told to prepare our gas masks. At one point, told to get hit hit the hit the ground and. We witnessed the people at the at the door being being against which there was a barricade uh, trying to get through, and it was a very harrowing kind of situation. Ultimately, the Capitol Police were able to get us to safety, and we we quarantined for some time. But um, it's not something I would wish on anybody. I understand you're back in San Diego now. Are you going back to Washington for the inauguration? I will go back for the inauguration. Yeah, I um, will want a security briefing on it in this the most fortified building that I know of, or you know, at least one of them, and certainly one of the top terrorist targets in the world. 
uh, how it was that a, a mob of civilians were, were able to overrun our force. Uh, that's a question that's got to be answered. I think it's got to be answered not just for me, but for the president, vice president-elect and for the country. Okay, then. I've been speaking with San Diego Congressman Scott Peters. Congressman Peters, thanks a lot. Thanks, Maureen. Be well. Last week's riot at the Capitol raised many questions about how law enforcement responded compared to their response and preparation over the summer during protests for criminal justice reform. In fact, their lack of preparedness was outrageous and even painful to see for many who have witnessed police use of force for seeking equality and justice throughout history. Joining me to discuss the historical perspective of this is David Miller, a lecturer of history at USD, where he teaches race and ethnicity and the Civil War. Professor Miller, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. You know, first, let's talk about the historical reality of Black people being brutalized by law enforcement while asking for equality and justice, while angry white mobs are in many ways welcomed by law enforcement and rarely face accountability for their terror and atrocities. Yeah, I think this is absolutely the appropriate place to start because obviously we're now still sorting through the facts and figuring out what exactly happened. And a lot of people there's a lot of perceptions and feelings that this was a very different response than what we've seen over the summer or what might have happened had these been Black Lives Matter protesters. And what's interesting is we now have data. In fact, I was just seeing there's a, a, a the website 538 is reporting uh, a recent academic study that showed during the summer, in fact, since May, authorities were twice as likely to break up and disperse left wing protests than right wings. And they were 34% uh, likely to use force against right-wing protests, but only 51% against the left. So clearly we now have data that shows that people's feelings and perceptions are actually accurate. So I think the question then is what's the historical context? That what's, what, what's the larger picture of U.S. history that allows us to, to engage in this question? Hmm. You know, there were Confederate flags, nooses, and chance to hang Vice President Mike Pence, for example. So many Americans didn't just see rioters, they saw a painful reminder of an angry lynch mob. Can you talk about that? To see a Confederate flag or the idea of a, uh, of lynching in, in, in a political act has very clear painful connections uh, to the historical reality of that, that throughout the history of the United States, white mobs, both inside and outside the law, have used terror and force and violence to to suppress Black freedom efforts, to, to suppress efforts by minorities, by immigrants, by women, to advocate or exercise constitutional rights. And the connection, I think, to the Civil War is, is particularly important because a lot of people are talking about this as if there's sort of a division like the Civil War. And in fact, I think thinking about the, the repercussions of the Civil War and the outcome of the Civil War, the consequences uh, in terms of race can help us understand what's happening and what we saw. So then what motivates uh, angry white mobs? Are there similarities specifically between the angry white, white mobs after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, for example, and then last week's predominantly white mob in terms of their motivations? Yeah, you know, it's hard to draw exact parallels. But what we know is that the roughly 400-year history of the United States is one based on not just white supremacy, but white normalcy. Um, going back to slaves arriving in 1619, the Naturalization Act of 1790 that declared whites, uh, whiteness as a requirement for citizenship. White has been the standard. And as such, white 
rage or right white protest is oftentimes viewed as being legitimate and fundamentally patriotic, whereas black or brown is not. And that's oftentimes because they're protesting from outside the system, a system that didn't include them. And an example of this is during um, right after the Civil War, during Reconstruction. In 1866, uh, while reconstructing the state of, of Louisiana, black veterans of the, of the Union Army in the Civil War uh, went on a, a freedom march uh, to uh, advocate for their right to vote. And a white mob of deputized sheriffs and former Confederates attacked them. And this riot left 50 people dead, 150 wounded. And, a, and, and that's just one example. We could go to, to Colfax in 1873 or Wilmington in 1898, where you have whites who have this, uh, who use violence outside the law to preserve their white authority and their normalcy, because that's what allows them, especially at the voting booth, to have power and to enact things like Jim Crow. You know, after last week's riot, there are, are calls for peace and reconciliation before justice. Uh, when you look back at history, is that approach problematic? And if so, why? I would say that it is. You know, I'm not a politician. I'm not here to tell any <laughs> politician what they should or shouldn't do. But historically, I think one of the lessons of the Civil War, in particular Civil War memory, is that we, we see that after the war, there was a real discussion about what the war meant. What was its purpose? Some, both North and South, wanted to reconcile, wanted to have reunion. Others, especially you know, former enslaved people, Black veterans, their view of the Civil War was that it was about emancipation. It was a moment of, of opportunity for racial justice. And what we know through our study of the memory of the Civil War is that the reunion, the reconciliation uh, message won out. And, and what justifies that is what we might call the lost cause uh, and, and of course, the result of that was another hundred years of Jim Crow and racial segregation and white supremacy and violence. And so I think the, the lesson that the, the end of the Civil War offers us is that when we're debating between peace and reconciliation and justice, um, that we have examples in our history where justice was left undone as people rushed to simply reunite and sort of put, put the past behind them. Is that one of the reasons history seems to repeat itself? The historical consequences uh, of the decisions made in the past are, are bearing fruit, and they continue to. I've been speaking with David Miller, lecturer of history at USD. Professor Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman.
COVID-19 continues to take its toll. In California, the virus is claiming about 360 lives a day and infecting thousands more. In overburdened hospitals, doctors and nurses are both exhausted and angry. Angry at people who are either blasé about COVID's dangers or just out-and-out pandemic deniers. For an in-depth look, here's KQED science reporter Leslie McGlurg. At her hospital in Orange County, Dr. Dinora Chinchia says they don't have enough beds. So they've had to change the criteria for who qualifies for critical care. In other words, you have to be sicker to be admitted to the ICU now. All I see is sick, 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 and a lot of death. Recently, Chinchia called me, crying on her drive home after losing so many patients in just a few days. I've never lost that many patients in a short period of time. Here's what she faces daily. Ambulances lined up around the block, patients in large white pop-up tents, halls overflowing. Chinchia tries to hold back tears when she gets home, and her little kids run towards her after a long day. Because I don't want them to, to see me sad. They give me a big hug and they say, Mommy, I'm a hero too. Back in the spring, Chinchia felt supported as a hero in her community. But now she feels betrayed. Every time I see people on social media, like, having parties or gatherings, I literally say, unfriend, unfriend, unfriend. I just can't take it anymore. The selfishness. Another doctor in Orange County recently urged folks to stay home over the holidays in an Instagram post. Dr. Victor Cisneros says it was met by an assault of profane pandemic denial. He likens that to denying a soldier's experience on the battlefield. Where he's getting shot at and fired at, you know, and maybe in Iraq. And then people that are not there on the ground saying, this isn't real. You're not being shot at. This is fake. He's floored that people refuse to wear masks and continue to believe things that are untrue. Or they think there's like microchips in the vaccines or they think that there's, you know, really bad side effects. And so I think that's very demoralizing sometimes as a healthcare provider where you're doing everything, you're putting so much work and then there's a stronghold on the other side increasing the spread. I would say anger. I would say sadness. Dr. Don Harris is the chief of medicine at Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital, an overwhelmed facility in a small town northeast of Sacramento. You spend a shift taking care of people in your own community, and then you leave and you're seeing people protesting, having to wear a mask. And you're thinking, okay, but if you get sick, I'm going to be here for you. And that's hard. That is the thing that hurts me the most inside. She knows she can't afford to catch the virus. We don't have that many doctors. If I get sick, you lose me. Everyone I spoke with talked about this disconnect. The general public just doesn't get their reality. Brittany Watson is an emergency room nurse in Oakland. They don't see the people who are being rushed to the hospital who are like fishes out of water who can't breathe. Watson remembers the first time she was alone with a patient who died of COVID-19. There would be a whole family and, and group of friends that would be standing here surrounding this person as they leave this world. And instead, they're left with me. A nurse covered in plastic from head to toe. Visitors aren't allowed inside most hospitals right now. The patient couldn't even see the care in Watson's face. They can only see this two to three inch window, my eyes and eyebrows, and that's the last person who's going to be with them. Currently, a tidal wave of COVID-19 is toppling her hospital. 
Watson says it feels like the virus saturates every crevice. When I'm at work, it feels like the walls are coming in. The facility is in the midst of its second internal outbreak. Doctors like Don Harris at Sierra Nevada Hospital want these holiday surges to be the last. I can't underestimate the excitement and the hope that I have attached to this vaccine and that other people in my position have. It's the first time that we've used the word hope. But the Christmas wave is just beginning to hit. A New Year surge is still a few weeks away. And many cold months lie ahead before the vaccine will start to slow the virus. I'm Leslie McClurg. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors is moving in a new direction. Newly elected chairman Nathan Fletcher says the board will vote on policies focusing on financial transparency, along with racial and economic justice. On Tuesday, the board will vote on a proposal by Fletcher and board vice chairwoman Nora Vargas to declare racism a public health crisis. Here's what Fletcher said that declaration would do. Well, the first thing it would do would be an affirmative statement of the obvious. Uh, When you have a child in Barrio Logan that is eight times more likely to have asthma than a child in La Jolla, uh, it is clear that that intentional government policies have created tremendous inequities, uh, most prevalently along lines of race. And we need to be honest about that. We need to acknowledge that. But beyond that, it moves us into a county of saying we are going to assess issues of equity and health equity in everything we do. We're going to measure data around uh, are we bridging a divide? Are we over-investing in communities that have been historically left behind? And we're going to hold ourselves accountable to those issues and to those measures. And then we're going to take the work of our Office of Race and, and Equity and Racial Justice that I created last year, our Human Relations Commission, and fully integrate that into everything we do, evaluating every board policy from an issue of racial justice and equity to say, are we doing our part to address the historic wrongs Uh, that have have fallen into our laps. Why do you feel this declaration is so important to San Diego County? What are the hard facts and uncomfortable truths San Diego County needs to grapple with? Well, the unfortunate reality, we've never reconciled in in a substantive and meaningful way the original sin of slavery at the founding of our country. And from that day until today, so many government policies have intentionally created racial inequities in our society. Everything from the presence of access to healthcare to land use and zoning, to what communities we build polluted uh, factories. You know, a child in Barrio Logan is eight times more likely to have asthma than a child in La Jolla. Uh, It is not uh, disconnected from the fact that that child in Barrio Logan is primarily brown or black and that child in La Jolla is primarily white. And so we just need to acknowledge the obvious that we see out there and is evident in front of us. And then we need to adopt an intentional strategy to try and address those issues. We need to change how we measure our success in areas of healthcare and all these types of things to take into account the racial implications, the historic inequities, uh, the underlying conditions that people inherited in order to truly get us to that promise of America that everyone will have equality of access to the American dream. Uh, And when you have these tremendous disparities, that is simply not a dream we are fulfilling and we have to do a much better job. Tuesday, the board will be voting on a letter that's meant to show a unified voice in terms of its COVID response. What do you think uh, is going to happen with that? Why do you think that's important? Well, I don't know if it'll be unified with all five supervisors, but I think it will be a majority of the board of supervisors speaking to say, we believe in public health. We believe in taking action to keep people safe. We cannot avoid the difficult choices in front of us. No one wants to put in place things that harm any small business, but we have to slow the spread of COVID. 
And over the last year, our board uh, from the supervisor level, the response has been erratic and inconsistent uh, and has not been a consistent approach as it relates to public health. And so we will go on record as a board to say we believe in science, we believe in data, we know that we have to take action to protect our communities and keep us safe. And the second part of that is as we have funding available to help with COVID response, that should be allocated to communities proportional to the impact of COVID. The Latino community is 30% of San Diego County. They are 60% of our positive cases. We need to make sure everything we do in recovery is being driven towards address uh, that disproportionate impact. And will the letter outline the restrictions to combat the spread of COVID-19? The letter will say that we support the restrictions uh, outlined to slow the spread of COVID-19. Again, we haven't had consistent messaging. I've been on the losing side of multiple 4-1 votes uh, at, at critical junctures uh, in our county's response. And I think it's important we speak with one voice uh, as a majority of the Board of Supervisors that we support the public health measures and we support the difficult steps that are being taken to try and protect our community. And, and outside from just simply speaking with one voice, how do you think the county should handle restrictions to combat the spread of coronavirus? Well, I, I, have, I have long thought that we need more adherence. We need more enforcement. Uh, we need more fidelity to the public health orders. You know, we're, we're confronting a global pandemic in a period of, of tremendous disinformation where we have elected officials going out sharing conspiracy theories and things that are not factually true. And those efforts have contributed significantly to the situation we face now, where we went from two to 300 cases a day to three to 4,000 cases a day, the tremendous strain and difficult decisions on our healthcare system. And the reality is it is a new year, a new day, a new board. We need a renewed focus community-wide to slow the spread of COVID while we get into vaccine distribution and work our way out of this. Do you see any opportunity for common ground in the county's approach to enforcement? Well, I think that there is a, a general acknowledgement that, that the measures are not going to be effective if there is no enforcement, and nobody wants to be punitive at all. Um, but, but the reality is, as a community, the overwhelming majority of people are following uh, the public health orders and taking this seriously, and they're the ones who pay the price for individuals who don't. Uh, and so we know the measures are put in place. There is science, there is data, there are facts that support them. And so working to see how we can get uh, greater enforcement is key. I think Mayor Todd Gloria take a tremendously positive step forward, reorienting the city and the police department uh, around a more aggressive posture surrounding enforcement. I appreciate what they're doing. City of Encinitas, Carlsbad, others are considering things. Uh, alcohol beverage control is stepping up their efforts. And then here at the county, we will redouble and refocus our efforts as well. Not out of a desire to be punitive, but out of a desire to save lives protect our healthcare system and get us through this crisis. And Supervisor Desmond has said that he believes your committee appointments have not been equitable with him getting the least appointments at seven while the supervisor with the next to least appointments had 13. How do you explain the difference in the number of appointments? Well, I don't think Jim Desmond understands the difference between equity and equality. Uh, he can say the appointments are not equal. He can't say that they're not equitable. For 40 years, folks who have the persuasion of Jim Desmond have held 100% of these seats. Take, for example, Nora Vargas, the first Latina in the history of San Diego County. A lot of those communities have not had a voice uh, on these commissions and boards for a long time, and she's going to have to work harder but be given more opportunity to address the inequities that have been built up over the past. I've been speaking with San Diego County Board of Supervisors Chair Nathan Fletcher. Chairman Fletcher, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
San Diego is known in the farming world for avocados, citrus groves, and its emerging wine industry. Now a new crop is starting to find a home in the region, coffee. KPBS North County reporter Jacob Ayer tells us how San Diego County has developed more coffee farms than any other place in the California. Coffee is typically grown in tropical regions and was previously considered an unviable crop in the continental United States. But along the 76 freeway corridor in San Diego's North County, farmers are growing California coffee. Singer-songwriter Jason Mraz owns one of those farms in East Oceanside. Hey, how you guys doing? Five years ago, he became one of the first farmers in the region to plant coffee trees. It's not easy to harvest. I mean, it could take you all day just to harvest one because you, you go blind in the sunlight or the shade or you're sticky with insects or the fruit. Miraz's coffee trees tower overhead at nearly 10 feet tall and are planted between avocado, banana, and other full-size fruit trees in a dense tropical terrain. He has 11 species of coffee on his 18-acre property and recently started selling his coffee beans commercially. The varieties of coffee fruit, or cherries as farmers call them, that grow on his 3,500 coffee trees are considered rare and often carry hefty price tags once roasted, especially a variety called geisha. Whether it's through folklore or legendary that it's a, that it's a brilliant bean, um, or just continued testing, drinking, and scoring high, uh, it continues to just outperform all other coffees. Moraz and all coffee growers across California get plant material, farming knowledge, and post-harvest processing from a company called Fringe Coffee. Fringe co-founder and CEO Jay Rusky first started his journey into California coffee about 20 years ago. Over the past few years, the coffee industry has started to take notice of his plan. I submitted some coffee as the coffee review. We got like 27th in the world and Got a lot of press on that, and then all of a sudden I realized there was a chance that we can do something bigger. Fringe Coffee now works with 67 farms across the state and 42 farms in San Diego County. California coffee cherries are known for their slow-growing process, which Rusky says enhances their flavor profiles. He equates the growing process, blending methods, and market for California coffee to another product, California wine which is produced in some of the same regions where coffee is now growing. The farmers out there in Southern California, um, mainly like Santa Barbara, Ventura, and San Diego, were really looking for something new. And so uh, French coffee in our coffee program was something that they thought they could adapt. While getting a coffee farm started in California is a challenge, the Fringe team shares planting and care methods with farmers like Moraz. In these aging avocado groves, which are all throughout San Diego, you can put rows of coffee between them. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, but there is a symbiosis or a relativity between the coffee and the avo that does really well. Blue Tail Coffee Grove owner Kyle Rosa learned early that coffee growing isn't easy. He lost 37% of his crop during his first year due to unforeseen overnight temperatures that got too cold. I have something new to worry about every stage. so. Can I get them in the ground? Yes. Will they grow? Yes. Will they produce cherries? Yes. Now the next stage is, will the cherries be of high quality? Rosa's farm lies between Vista and San Marcos. He has yet to sell his product commercially, but he is set to open a drinkery called Breakers Coffee and Wine in Del Mar this spring. Uh, Whether you want the caffeine buzz or the alcohol buzz is up to you. Um, But being able to explore new lands in terms of coffee and wine is, is what we're really pushing. While California's coffee industry is still in its infancy, Moraz sees it continuing to grow, 
perhaps joining other prize industries in the state. He says there could even be a future in agro-tourism for the North County. Even if people just wanted to drive around and look at fruit trees, this is a unique place to do that, to see things that you may have never seen with your eyes before. Perhaps one day soon, San Diegans will see something else new, California coffee on the menu of their local cafe. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. With California reeling from the pandemic surge and a host of incredible national events, you wouldn't think there'd be much time left over for sports news. But lately, the Padres have slipped into the headlines. Several big trades have been exciting fans and have sports writers pegging the pods as a potential playoff contender. Padres general manager A.J. Preller has been one of the most aggressive executives this offseason, making acquisitions of pitchers Blake Snell from the Tampa Bay Rays, Hugh Darvish, a Japanese player with the Chicago Cubs, and shortstop Hassan Kim. And joining me is San Diego sports writer Jay Paris. Jay, welcome. Good morning, Mo. How are we doing? I'm doing great today. Thank you. Good. <laughs> now, these trades seem to be revving up real excitement. Why is that? Well, I, I think a lot of it is the uh, the landscape of the Major League Baseball. Uh, they are uh, their revenue streams, to put it lightly, were uh, were uh, decimated last year with, with the COVID, and so it's not a really lot of activity out there on the market. Somebody forgot to tell AJ Preller, you know those old blockbuster stores that are all out bankrupt now. Well, he did blockbuster trades all off season. I mean, the the gentleman he picked up, you Darvish, uh, second in the Cy Young Award. Uh, last year for the Cubs, which goes to the top pitcher. Uh, Blake Snell, I mean, he was the Cy Young Award winner in the American League two years ago. We certainly saw what he did to the the Dodgers in the World Series before he was uh, <laughs> removed, which was a bad managerial decision. But, but these are key players. And Kim from Korea, uh, he can play all around the infield, second, third, shortstop. Of course, we know the Padres have a heck of a shortstop in Fernando Tatis Jr. and a third baseman, their $300 million man in Manny Machado. But there might be a spot at second base, uh, Kim Kim Platoon with Jay Cronenworth. So, you know, they're set in the infield, but AJ saw a good player and he pounced. And uh, the more good players you have, the more depth you can uh, build up, the better off you're going to be. So Padre fans, I'm telling you, they have waited so long. And uh, the, the, the patience of Job, if you will, you know, nine straight losing seasons. And finally, they have a roster that can uh, doesn't have to cower down to those big bad Dodgers up north. But okay, I'll get to that in a minute. But but you mentioned it, okay? So what is this costing? Uh, those guys got plenty of money. Please, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know they've got a lot of balls in the air. Uh, I think too, you have to look at, at Peter Seidler, who's taken over for Ron Fowler. Uh, he's got some deep pockets now, and uh, you know those those guys aren't benevolent. It's it's good business. It's good business to get people in the seats, and uh, you know. It looks like they're going to figure out how to pay for it all later, but uh, I, I can't remember the last time I heard of a baseball team going broke. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, so how do the Padres compare to the 2021 Dodgers, who are, of course, just coming off a World Series win? Right. I, I think the pitching is the key. Uh, that was the biggest difference between the two teams when the Dodgers swept them last year in the playoffs. It's hard to uh, quantify how important starting pitching is in the major leagues. If, if you got a good starting pitcher, you've got a chance to win that day. Now, realistically, the, the Padres have five of them. They can can win any of those days. So the, the Dodgers are still the Dodgers and, and they're making some moves too. But uh, no longer is it uh, 
wishful thinking. No longer is it pie in the sky. No longer is it some outlandish uh, speculation that the Padres will be playing men- meaningful games at the end of the season. This is a good ball club, and they're going to be fun to watch. Any predictions as to what the 2021 baseball season will be like? For instance, do you see some stadiums filling up again? You know, filling up may, may be a stretch. Uh, they're still trying to figure out spring training. And, uh, you know, we're at the heights of, of the uh, the curve in this day in COVID-19. So, you know, I, I think, you know, spring training could be pushed back a little bit. I th- I've heard people saying that they might start the season in, in Memorial Day weekend, more more so in May than in April, to see if we can get this uh, dastardly disease under under control. So, that's the long answer. The short answer is nobody knows. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anybody that says otherwise is, uh, I'd like to see that crystal ball. You know, I would like to know before I let you go, your thoughts now that Jack Murphy, Qualcomm, San Diego County Credit Union Stadium are all a thing of the past. And we're back to San Diego Stadium in Mission Valley. What does that make you think about? You know, being a sports writer, that that was my second home, especially when the Chargers had their their offices right there on the club level. Uh, you know, I raised two boys, and I know everybody else in San Diego, San Diego County has has raised their kids, and just the memories in that place. Was it a great stadium? Not really. <laughs> Were the amenities up to snuff? No, they weren't. <laughs> Were things leaking and falling down? Yes, they were. But the memories from there, everything from the the Rolling Stones to the to the Padres going to the World Series, it's uh, it was part of the fabric. But I think that just did, um, accelerate. It was accelerated when the Chargers left. I mean, all those memories left, and but you still kind of had. Qualcomm, if you will, Jack Murphy Stadium to, to drive by every once in a while and, and relive those memories. Uh, that's not going to be the case. I'm excited to see what they construct there. But, you know, it it, it, it was like a, a stadium. It was our stadium. Yes, it had blemishes. We did, we looked past those warts. We had fun tailgating. We had fun at the ball games. It was as much as San Diego as, you know, fish tacos and a good sunset. I mean, people <laughs> loved coming to, to San Diego Stadium because of that big parking lot. Very few stadiums that have the wherewithal to let you party before the game like San Diego. And as we know, with some of those Charger teams, uh, the best part of the day was before the game often instead of during the game. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I've been speaking with San Diego sports writer Jay Paris. Thank you so much. Stay positive and test negative, okay? KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego rep and its playwright in residence Herbert Seguenza are launching a new online program called Vamos tonight. They will debut a new episode on the second Monday of each month on the rep's social media. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando previews the show that is designed to highlight a different Latin country in each episode. Herbert, you have a new project with the San Diego Rep called Vamos. So first of all, just tell us what this is. What can people expect from this? Well, this is kind of a a fantasy TV show that I've always wanted to see on TV. And since we're on lockdown, you know, we're always looking for stuff to put online at San Diego Rep. And I told Sam, hey, there's this idea I have that I've always had a TV. I've always wanted to see a TV show like uh, Anthony Bourdain or something like that that he just concentrates on Latin America. 
And, and so that's what I did. I'm, I'm going to put out a show that each month I'm going to pick a country. I, I can't go to there, but I'm, you know, I'm going to do the research. And I know a lot about Latin American history. I've taught Latin American history. And I just want to show people the, the beauty and the, the diversity that each Latin American country has and what they offer to the world uh, culturally and uh, in the culinary world as well. I'm going to uh, be giving a, showing a recipe. At the end of every show, I'm going to be um, going through a recipe with people. So what can people expect in terms of the format of this? Is it just going to be you? Are you going to be interviewing people? Is there performance involved? What exactly can they expect? Yeah, I'm, I'm developing as we speak. I'm going to do kind of a humorous kind of pecha uh, presentation of the country. In other words, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes uh, giving people some context of the country. You know, it's history its writers, its geography, and the music and all that, just talking about the country itself, the politics, of course. And then um, I'm going to show a video of one of their, you know, prominent musicians, perhaps. I might read some poetry from one of their uh, great poets. For example, I'm doing Chile right now. I'm editing Chile. I will be reading some poems by Pablo Neruda, of course. And then we're going to end with a recipe of my uh, of empanadas. Empanadas from Chile are delicious. So this show is going to be the second Monday of every month. So is Chile going to be the first country of focus then? Actually, Peru is. Peru's already been done. You know, I talk about uh, Peruvian culture. And, and of course, I give a recipe on ceviche at the end. <laughs> talk about the Incan culture. And, 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 and I just give some, some background on how diverse Peru is. You know, I mean... Uh, there was a big migration of Japanese that people that that went there. Chinese, you know, one of their presidents, Fujimori, was was a Japanese descent. So these are things like that. I just want to remind people that Latin America is not this homogenous, you know, south of the border thing. Each country has its unique culture, its unique history, and they're very different. They're very different, actually. Were you and the rep looking at things to do online and virtually to keep people engaged? And, and was that kind of the thing that you were looking into doing? Well, we found out when we were down in, when we were really in lockdown in April, I, I was doing a show called uh, Lunch Breaks with Herbert Seguenza. There were just one minute shows or two minute shows where I would just do poetry or, you know, tell a joke or something like that. It was just a, a fun way to just connect with people. But we found out that when I did a recipe, when I did a live recipe, those would get the, the best reviews and they would get the most views. So this is kind of expanding on that, using the, the cooking as a, as a way in to explaining other things like history and culture. Now, for some people who are younger and may not be as familiar with your work, remind people of your roots in Culture Clash and how that kind of has colored the way you look at art and at, at the kind of things you want to express. Yes, um, I'm a founding member of Culture Clash, which is uh, celebrating 36 years together. We were founded in San Francisco in an art gallery and did bilingual. We did comedy about being bilingual, about being bicultural, and we became very successful. You know, we did a lot of work, especially for the San Diego Rep and uh, the Mark Taper Forum in LA. And and uh, now I'm here. Now I'm here uh, working for the rep. I'm, I'm a playwright in residence here through a Mellon grant. And I'll be here another two more, uh, two more years at least uh, working for the rep. But I don't plan to leave. I, I, really, I, I really like the, 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 the artistic uh, 
environment here in San Diego. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay and live here and try to work here as well. Well, that reminds me, you do have this longstanding relationship with the San Diego rep. Yes. What has that been like over the years in terms of the things you feel like you've been able to do and, and how that's benefited you? Well, the San Diego rep has been basically my artistic home. I mean, um, they produced Culture Clash over the years, like, I don't know, about eight times over the years in the 90s and the 2000s. And then when I got this grant, this um, this uh, Mellon grant, they've produced all my play. Uh, they've produced all, all the plays that I've written as a solo uh, artist. But one of our most successful collaborations has been a my, my one-man show called A Weekend with Pablo Picasso, which premiered at the Rep and then toured the, the nation. And uh, this year, last year, should I say, last year we, we did a film version of A Weekend with Pablo Picasso. The pandemic has been a real challenge for arts organizations because you guys exist on having people come together in a space and, and share. But opportunities like this have also come up. So are there occasional silver linings to this that you're discovering? Oh, absolutely. I think it has been a silver lining because I've always felt that the regional theaters were basically factories that were just on automatic I wasn't very happy with the institutions of theater overall in, in America. I think it was kind of a cookie cutting uh, process. Uh, the challenging work was always seen in the small theaters, but the minute you got to bigger theaters, you know, the work changed because of economics. And I just think that's a, that's a shame. I think Black Lives Matter, the pandemic and Black Lives Matter have also shown us that we were way, very much behind in equity and equality in the theater. It also showed us that the, the power structure of the regional theater was pri pri primarily white. And so these are things that are facts. You know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making it up. These are facts and these are problems that have to be resolved. And I think uh, this pause has been really very um, beneficial for a lot of theaters to, to sit back and say, what are we lacking? Are we really uh, lacking representation here? And the answer is probably yes. And so now's the time to, to recover and, and try to make uh, things better. Now, the rep, the rep has always, has always been um, good about uh, showing uh, plays by people of color, writers of color, but it can, it can always get, it can always be better. But one thing that the rep is doing this year, and I'm gonna probably be uh, showcasing it later after this, uh, vamos, uh, after this series, is that I wanna, um, I wanna highlight how much the rep is uh, investing in, in developing new work by people of color. All right, well, I wanna thank you very much for talking about your new show, Vamos. Thank you. That was Betha Comando speaking with San Diego Rep's playwright in residence, Herbert Seguenza. Vamos debuts tonight and will remain available on the San Diego Rep's social media after it debuts. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, 
we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.